as usual, um, there's more than what I have time to say um, in, the, uh, in the handout that is before you. Um, so I want uh, you to um, feel free to, to take it home and we'll be referring to it by and by. Let's just remind ourselves of where we were and where we have come and where we're going in the Gospel of Matthew. We're at the end of chapter 9. Chapters 8 and 9 put Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 to 7 into action. So 5 to 7 was a speech consisting of Jesus teaching about the kingdom ethic. And then in 8 and 9, Jesus went around healing people. And of course, prior to the first speech was some introductory material that pointed to the Jewishness of Jesus, that introduced us to the John the Baptist, who was an important forerunner to Jesus, rather like Elijah was a forerunner to Elisha. And we noticed a Jewish theme to the Gospel of Matthew, much more so than in Mark, Luke, or John. And that Jewish theme picks up again today, and we'll see it in that Jesus commissions the 12 apostles not to go to the world of the Gentiles, but to go only to the household of Israel. And that will strike us as a little bit surprising, and we'll come to that. So this is really uh, the end of a section leading up to Jesus' second main speech. If you look on uh, page, uh, the fourth page of the handout, where I talk about uh, context and reorientation, I remind us that there are five speeches of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. And this is no accident. It's intended, I believe, to reflect the five books of Moses. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These five books were of paramount importance in Judaism, much more important than the rest of the Old Testament. And so here we have five speeches of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Over the past several months, we were looking at the theme of the kingdom ethic and discipleship in the Sermon on the Mount, which is the first major speech. And we are now coming to knock on the door and actually step into the second speech today, which is Jesus' teaching about mission. So our sermon today has a missionary emphasis. Soon we'll come to chapter 13, where parables of the kingdom are taught, the third major speech. And then in 18, there are lessons on relationships among disciples. For example, on the importance of being reconciled to one another as a requisite to worship. And then chapters 24 and 25, the fifth speech is a speech about the future, uh, the end times. So here we are knocking on the doorstep of the second speech, which pertains to uh, mission. And Jesus is soon going to commission his 12 apostles to go and undertake missionary work. But Jesus begins in verse 35 and in verse 36 with what can be called kind of a summary as well as an introduction. In verse 35, it says, Jesus was going around all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and every sickness. You see the three things there, teaching in the synagogues. Jesus was a Jew. His focus was on teaching his fellow Jews. There was no such thing as Christianity at this point. Christianity began as a Jewish sect and came to include Gentiles. Jesus proclaimed the good news. 
as did uh, John the Baptist. And then Jesus healed every disease and every sickness. Now, if you have your ESB, or any other Bible for that matter, it's interesting to turn back to chapter 4, because we'll see the same thing in chapter 4, verses 23 to 25. Just before the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 4, verse 23. It's on page 898 in the large print version. Uh, what page is it on in the little black print version? Has anybody got it? 759. Thanks, Trevor. Notice it says, He went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and teaching every disease and every affliction among the people. Exactly the same words. So this is a summary of the ministry of Jesus. And then in what follows in chapter 4, verse 24, is a notice of the widespread fame of Jesus. He was going all around the area, and people all around were coming to him from Syria and from uh, the uh, Decapolis and beyond Jerusalem and Judea and beyond the Jordan. So Jesus was a busy fellow, and he taught all around the area. And then in verse 5, 1, it says, seeing the crowds, which is exactly what we read in verse 36 of chapter 9. But seeing the crowds. So let's compare those through for a minute. 4.23 introduces us to the ministry of Jesus, which we're now quite familiar with through the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount and through Jesus' healings. And now we come to a summary in 9.35, which kind of reminds us of where we have been. And in verse 5, when he saw the crowds, Jesus decided that he was going to teach his disciples about his kingdom ethic. So he gives the Sermon on the Mount primarily to his disciples, but also to everyone else. This time, when Jesus sees the crowds, we're told that he felt compassion towards them, for they were harassed and downcast like sheep not having a shepherd. You know, this is remarkable because um, I don't know about you, but if you're an introvert, crowds are exhausting. If you've been involved in the healthcare industry over the past uh, two years, uh, there's a phenomenon called burnout. You know, two years ago, you started looking after this individual with COVID and that individual with COVID, and you had compassion here and compassion there, but they kept coming and they kept coming and they kept coming. At a certain point, if you're like me, you reach kind of max out and you just say, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. I don't care. Reminds me of a tenant that we had who had a, a raccoon in the ceiling above her. And at first, she wanted us to take care of this raccoon and make sure that we stored it and caught it in a healthy way. But eventually, it drove her so nuts that she just came at the end and said, I don't care what you do with it, nuke the thing. Because the raccoon had been bothering her and bothering her and bothering her. So she lost her compassion for the, for the raccoon. But Jesus here sees the crowds. And he feels compassion. Wow. You know, if you live in a small town, you run into a stranger, you say hello, because strangers are pretty uncommon, you know, and you can do that. You've got the mental energy for it. But in downtown Toronto or downtown Boston or downtown Manhattan, there are so many people, you just don't even bother saying hi on the street. Just leave me alone, do my thing. I'm going to read my book on the GO train. There are too many people to care about. But when Jesus saw the crowds, he felt compassion. And so he reacted with this kind of an inner feeling. The word, in, the word in Greek has something to do with kind of turning the inwards. innards. He had a, a, a 
a sympathetic gut reaction. Why? Well, they were constantly at his feet and you would think he would lose, would lose his patience, but he noticed their condition and he thought this just, this just, it's continuing. They keep coming and they keep coming, but I continue to care. They were bothered and they were downcast. Now these two words harassed and downcast are kind of unusual, especially when you compare them to what Jesus says about like sheep, not having a shepherd. But when Jesus invokes the imagery of a shepherd in verse 36, it kind of takes us into a context where we understand what he means by these sheep. You see, a shepherd in um, Israel was a king. And David uh, was a great king. And so when Jesus refers to himself as the shepherd, people think, oh, the David shepherd the Messiah shepherd who's going to come and take good care of us. And that stands in contrast to the other shepherds, the other rulers who were mean and nasty. Actually, previously, when Jesus refers to himself in a shepherd in Matthew, the, the earlier time, uh, guess what it's in the context of? It's in the context of Jesus's battle with Herod in chapter two. O you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, a bad shepherd king, a shepherd king who literally killed infants in Bethlehem, summoned the wise men and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. So there's a contrast between bad rulers who diss people, who bother people, and even who murder people, as many of the kings and rulers did in ancient Israel, without really caring for the people. It's not hard to think of a certain ruler right now who's exercising no care or concern for people who are related to him in a neighboring country. His concern is only for his own glory and aggrandizement, and he cares nothing about murdering thousands and thousands of people. I met one today this afternoon as I was coming into Wycliffe. He might be here a little bit later on. His name is Ruslan. Ruslan Popov, and he came to Wycliffe and is living in the building right now. And he said to me, as I was talking to him this afternoon, he says, you know, I know you see it on TV, but I go out in the street. And he said, I see people in my city like rubbish. I see a leg over there and a hand over there and children over there, and somebody is murdering them, the man in that country next door. And so here is Popov, whose son is in the army and who's fighting. He showed me a picture of his son who's fighting in the army all because there's some bad shepherd who's not caring about his people. In contrast, Jesus reaches out with compassion. For they were harassed and downcast, like sheep not having a shepherd. That's the reaction of Jesus to our state of need. So Jesus has a plan. In verse 37, so he says to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, yet the helpers are few. He looks upon this, this just never-ending parade of people with <clears throat> uh, leprosy, maimed legs, um, all kinds of terrible conditions coming to him. Hi, come. <laughs> Ruslan, I was just talking about you a minute ago. We're glad you're here. Come and find a seat and they'll show you a bulletin. 
Jesus looks at the crowd and he says, the harvest is abundant, yet the helpers are few. Therefore, plead with the Lord of harvest that he dispatch workers into his harvest. Now, there's an interesting dynamic here having to do with the word disciples. Jesus refers to disciples, but he hasn't yet introduced them. And in fact, he hasn't talked a whole lot about disciples before. Yes, in chapter 4, uh, verses 18 to 22, he introduced Peter and Andrew and James and John, but he didn't really call them disciples. These were fishermen who left their nets and followed him. So you'll see a graduation which I have underlined in verses 37 and then in 10.1 and then in 10.2. Disciples are first referred to generally here as a way of including us. And then in 10.1, Jesus calls his 12 disciples, which are more specific, because the 12 disciples are going to have a mission that we don't. So my point is, is that we read through chapter 10, which we're going to do over the next three weeks, we need to have two things in mind, that Jesus is speaking specifically to the 12 who are going out only to Israel. We're going to read that in a minute. Jesus says, go not in the way of the Gentiles, in verse uh, 5, or a city of the Samaritans. Jesus' focus is Israel only, and the focus of the 12 apostles at that point is Israel only. So some of what we're going to be reading in chapter 10, we're going to scratch our heads and say, well, okay, yeah, that was with the apostles and the Jews. But it's also a message for us, because later on in chapter 28, of course, we get commissioned to be those who go out and share the news with the Gentiles, with the rest of the world. So uh, there's kind of a split focus here with disciples. So when Jesus says to his disciples in verse 37, the harvest is abundant, yet the helpers are few, he's talking to the 12 about Israel, but he's also talking to Jack and Suzanne and Mary and Wendy and all kinds of other people across the world. The harvest is abundant, yet the helpers are few. Jesus is saying, we need all hands on deck. There's a lot of work to be done, folks. There's a lot of good news to be shared with others. There's a lot of hurt in the world that needs responding to. I'm only one person. I've got lots of compassion, but guess what? And instead of asking them, you can almost sort of read the early church here and read a contemporary missionary committee here in a church. Therefore, plead with the Lord of the harvest that he dispatch workers into his harvest. Pray for more missionaries. Christ the King has a good long heritage of supporting missionaries. We've got a list of people that we pray for every Sunday. And what Jesus is doing is asking us, his disciples, as well as the original 12, plead with the Lord of the harvest that he send and dispatch workers into his harvest. Now, a Jew listening to the word harvest would at first be frightened because the motif of harvest in the Old Testament is one of judgment. The harvest is the great reaper, you know, the grim reaper. And so when you think of people helping with the harvest, you'll think of angels who are inflicting judgment upon people who are about to be doomed. But this harvest is a harvest of joy. It's a harvest of celebration. It's spread the good news all around. Let's get all the people that we can because the Lord of the harvest needs more workers in the harvest field. Friends, there's a missionary emphasis here, and it could not be more important. You'll notice a sense of urgency as we continue through the text. Jesus sees this as central, as crucial, because there's a lost world out there that needs to hear the good news of Jesus and that needs the healing ministry of Jesus enacted through his spirit 
first by himself, then by the 12, and in turn by us. So there's a point for us to take away, and it's an invitation for us to pray for missions. Plead with the Lord of the harvest that he dispatch workers into his harvest. Okay, well now we come to 10, 1. And before the verses, I have sort of encoded an outline of the text um, in the passage. So first of all is the empowerment of the 12, 10, 1. And having called his 12 disciples, still hasn't named them yet, because this implies in part to us, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to expel them and to heal every disease and every sickness. This is exactly the same ministry as Jesus had. And we have his authority to do that. Now that raises the issue about whether we, when we go into the mission field, ought to be raising the dead and healing the sick. And in fact, there's a tension here. And Matthew is aware of the problem. Because when he gives us the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel, he says, go and make disciples by baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. And he doesn't go on and say, and by raising the dead and by doing miracles. So those miracles happen, and they still happen today. But they don't come as an essential part of the package in the same way that they did to these disciples in the early church, and particularly when they went out among the tribes of Israel, when they went out among the Jewish people. So uh, Matthew is, is, uh, is sort of holding that out as a prospect and a possibility for us, but applies more in the case of the disciples than it does in our case directly. And there's more about that in the notes under one of the problems that we discuss. Then Jesus gives us the names of the 12 disciples. And I think it's kind of fun and helpful to remember the names of the 12 disciples. And let's just notice a few things among them. First of all, there's a priority. And Jesus was kind of not an egalitarian in this respect. He had a favorite. You know, there's a debate among parents about whether they have their favorite children or whether they don't. And often people from one culture will say, come on, admit it, you got your favorite child. And people from another culture will say, no, they're all the same to us, all the same to us. But first was Simon. Simon Peter was the most important, at least in terms of his prominence. I'm sure Jesus loved them all the same. But here they come in twos. We got two brothers, Simon and Andrew, and then they were the fishermen. And so were James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. They were introduced in chapter 4, uh, verses 18 to, uh, to 22. And then come Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector. Now, if Matthew wrote the gospel, which I believe he, he quite possibly did, here Matthew is owning his own identity. <laughs> tax collector, <laughs> scumbag, that's me. Uh, because the scumbag, the tax collector, was somebody who had dealings with Gentiles. I mean, you just couldn't be an honorable Jew and, and handle all of that money, all that filthy lucre. Matthew's saying, that's me. And then as you go on down through the poll, you get James and Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon the Zealous, this guy was a, a kind of a patriot freedom fighter. Uh, there weren't zealots yet, but he was, he was, he was a kind of a forerunner to the, to the zealots who wanted to overthrow the Roman government. And then Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Judas is always mentioned last in the list of disciples, and Simon Peter first. Except in the Gospel of Mark, which Simon Peter actually contributed to the writing of, he doesn't, have, he, he doesn't call himself first. So there's an element of humility here that's the same as the element of humility that you'll see in Matthew, who admits himself to being a tax collector. 
One of the things that struck me as I looked at the 12, and there's a little appendix that goes through and just reminds you of the identity and the mission of the 12 in your notes. But one of the things that struck me was the fact that we know very little about 10 of these 12 people. I mean, they were crucial. They were Jesus's key people. They did the work of God, but we don't necessarily know what they did apart from so-and-so the zealot, so-and-so the betrayer, um, so-and-so the tax collector. But most of them were ordinary Joes who did their thing and whose names are recorded in the book of life and they played a crucial role, but history knows little of them. And I dare to suggest that that's been the same with believers ever since. The number of famous Christians are few and far between, but many people throughout these centuries have done the work of God faithfully and have gone to their reward in relative anonymity. So it is with us. So now Jesus gives instructions for the mission field, and here comes the surprise in verse 5. The target audience, these 12 Jesus sent, commanding them by saying, go not in the way of the Gentiles or a city of the Samaritans. Go out rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Go out verbally proclaiming, the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, and expel demons. So let's just note the target audience, and I've said already that the target audience here is Israel. Why Israel? I don't know um, how many of you know about uh, theology in the United States, but probably one of the biggest movements within American evangelicalism is called dispensational premillennialism. I went to one of their seminaries. And this verse is very important to them because they believe that the church was an afterthought. Stay with me for just a minute because it's interesting and it might help you understand some of your people, friends who go to a, um, a Bible chapel or a gospel chapel or are part of maybe an evangelical free church. Great people, people who love the Lord, take the Bible seriously. Don't get me wrong, they, 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 they are, they're great people, but their, their theology is um, slightly unorthodox in this respect. They believe, as is true, we know it from Acts 3 and from Matthew chapter 10, that Jesus came and he presented the kingdom first to the Jewish people. Now, their view is that if the Jewish people had received the kingdom and embraced the message of Jesus, that Jesus then would have set up his geopolitical kingdom and that um, the 12 tribes of Israel, you know, the apostles, the disciples would be sitting on the thrones of um, <clears throat> along and, and ruling the 12 tribes. In other words, that the literal geopolitical kingdom that seems to be foreshadowed in the Old Testament would come into reality, but they rejected the message. And so the church came as kind of a backup plan. And so uh, our dispensational premillennial friends will say that the church is nowhere prophesied in the Old Testament. The church is not Israel. The church is different than Israel. So before God needs to come back and continue his plan with the Jewish people, the church needs to be raptured out and then comes the tribulation and the millennium, which is for Jews and such. Well, they have a point, I want to say, in regard to the fact that, yes, Jesus did go first to announce the kingdom. And I think that if they had received the kingdom, that that might well have happened. But that doesn't mean that the, mentile, the mission to the Gentiles is uh, an afterthought, because God in his sovereignty knew that they wouldn't accept it, and so the church was always part of God's plan. So even in verse uh, 5, where you see this Israel-only focus, you see a tension earlier in Matthew 
when Jesus goes to Galilee of the Gentiles to conduct his mission. There were Jewish people. He spent his time in Capernaum. He spent his time around the Jewish people. But he was in Gentile territory as a foray into that broader mission that includes the Gentiles. So that's why Jesus sends the, God, the, the disciples out first to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You remember in chapter 15, the Canaanite woman comes and begs mercy from Jesus. And Jesus says, ah, we don't throw the dogs, we don't give, we don't give the, the food that's reserved for the Jews to the, to, to the Gentiles. And the woman responds and says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs from under the table. So there is a, there's kind of a hierarchy here. So this is part of the story that doesn't apply to us. The, the, the 12 apostles went to Israel, and we are to minister to our Jewish friends, but we're also to minister and reach out to the broader world as a whole. All right, what about the fee structure? Verses 9 following. Jesus said, and you know, I, I've heard it so often, I didn't really understand before this week. Freely you have received, freely give. That free is monetary. You receive without pay, give without pay. You see, if you're raising the dead and healing people, people are going to say, oh, we're so grateful. I mean, I'm sure you traveled a long way to get here. You must have needs. Well, yes, I do. I have a bit of a mortgage at home that I wouldn't mind having a little care taken of. Jesus said, you received without pay. Heal, raise the dead, and serve without pay. And what a message this is to an enterprising world of Christianity where in many corners of the world, religion is for profit. I fly in my private plane and I pass the plate around and you give and I get rich. Jesus will have none of that and reminds us of that. So the fee structure is you do it gratis because you receive gratis. Freely you received, so give freely. And then Jesus says, don't even put gold or much less silver or much less copper in your money belts. Ben, if you're worried about raising money for this summer, which of course you need to, the good news is that God has already looked after that. And that um, God's going to do what, um, what he's going to have you do this summer um, with conscious fundraising or not. But that doesn't mean that fundraising is bad. Um, they, they were looked after. The worker merits his sustenance, but it does mean that we don't need to get uptight. If you decide to go out on the mission field and the mission organization says, oh yeah, but you must raise your money. Trust me, that's a showstopper. You probably could ask the Alenskis about this. I wanna serve God, but you mean I've gotta go out and ask people for money? That is a bummer. Well, that's necessary, but it ought not to get in the way of our willingness to go because God will provide. So I'm not saying that money raising is wrong, but I am saying, and it gets back to Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus says, don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear, because your father knows your need and has responded to it already. So there's a bit of a lesson if we're thinking about missions. Don't worry about the money. God will take care of it. But your work is worthy of pay, and um, con contribute contributions are welcome. There's kind of a, a balance there. Billeting and etiquette. Jesus tells these disciples who are going into this Jewish territory in whatever city or village you enter, carefully determine who is suitably fitting in it and there remain until you leave. And upon entering the house, greet it with your peace. Anywhere in the Muslim world today, when you greet another Muslim, they will say, Salam Alaikum, which means peace upon you. 
and they got it from Jesus, and they got it from the Jews, who say, Shalom Aleichem. And what they mean is, may God bless you with wholeness and with peace. And Jesus says, when you go into a house that's willing to take you, grant it your peace. And if it turns out that the house is well-fitting, let your peace bestowal come upon it. But if it's not well-fitting, let your peace bestowal come back upon you. In other words, that blessing from a, a man or a woman of God, when it's done in earnest, in a context of hospitality, really carries some weight. And so um, we can throw salam alaikum and shalom alaikum, uh, and may God's peace be with you and the peace of the Lord be with you, uh, glibly, but we ought not. It conveys something. So think of that the next time you share the peace in the context of an Anglican or another service. This is also serious business. Should anyone not receive you, verse 14, or your message, upon exiting that house or town, shake the dust off your feet. Don't have anything to do with it. You see, this isn't um, a marketing campaign where you're selling vacuum cleaners. This is salvation. This is the gift of eternal life. This is wholeness. And if you embrace it, um, you're blessed. And if you refuse it, oh my gosh, you are in, I mean, what more can we be, what, what more can be done? And we are to distance ourselves and remove ourselves from, 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 um, from that, that, that attitude. Um, it goes back to a Middle Eastern custom, perhaps, that believed that um, the, the, uh, the, the ground of heathen territory was unclean and we shake it off our feet. There's a certain degree of catharsis there and also a degree of religiosity. The severity of it, I guarantee you that the land of Sodom and Gomorrah will fare better on the day of judgment than that city. Jesus is saying this is crucial stuff. There's nothing more important than sharing the good news and then praying that people will receive it. And that if they don't receive it, then God's mercy be upon them. But they've said no to the only mercy that God offers, and that's through Jesus Christ by his grace. So the situation is rather hopeless. And finally, the words to us come as advice. When we share the good news with others, we need to be reminded that we are being sent out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. Um, I have been an Anglican for a long time and an Orthodox Anglican. And sometimes you'll go to one of these church gatherings that are plenary sessions where there's a lot of politicking going on. And a lot of things are happening behind closed doors to try and get something passed or not. And some of the things that Anglican groups want to get passed are unbiblical and unscriptural in the denomination to which I used to belong. Um, and at the end of these synods, sometimes I would think, oh man, we just got outsmarted like I can't believe. And I used to think, you know, the Orthodox ones are as innocent as doves <laughs> and the other ones are as shrewd as serpents. And what you need is both. Um, so I think we do a better job of being pure and innocent and honest, which we're to be. But we're also, uh, there's also a place for kind of shrewdness and sort of strategizing because um, uh, the stakes are high and this is important stuff. It's the orthodox heritage of the church that is, uh, of, the, of the church that's in the hands of church leaders. And we need to make sure that we are shrewd and innocent. 
So let me close by reminding us what's already at the head of the, of the sermon. What is Jesus's response to the vast multitudes of people in our world who are lost, oppressed, and needy? The answer is, he urges us to pray for others whom, like us, he now urgently authorizes to get out there and share the glad tidings of his saving work, which entails not only spiritual redemption, but the healing of tangible hurts. That healing the sick stuff was not a sideshow. It was part of Jesus's concern for the whole person, because we are not disembodied souls, we're whole people, and it's the whole person that God cares about. Let us close in prayer. Gracious God, thank you for coming into the world in the person of Jesus and for showing us your heart for people, your compassion for the masses of people that are lost and that are beaten down and oppressed by tyrants the world over to this day. And we pray that you would prompt us to pray for more workers that go into the harvest and that you would prompt us to be zealous and earnest and prioritize the sharing of the good news and the meeting of the needs of others. For we pray this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.